Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. This podcast is going to be a little bit different. Um, I am taking a break from Dharma Dialogues for a few months because we don't have any scheduled for a while. And I'm going to New Zealand to lead a retreat. And in April and in May, I'm going to be doing a course for the School of Life in Melbourne. So in the meantime, we're going to be keeping the podcast going with conversations with some of my friends, which are basically often like Dharma Dialogues, only just one-on-one. And uh, today I'm very excited to have my dear friend Juliette here, here at my home in Australia. She lives nearby, actually. And you will have heard about her from me a few times. I often describe her as one of my friends who's a total recluse, and um, she's uh, done me the honor of coming out and being among the living. <laughs> um, she actually does love the living. She loves animals, mostly. Um, but anyway, I thought we would have a conversation about solitude, as Juliet is a great expert in solitude and, um, and many other things. But let's talk a bit about the love of solitude, and as you call it, Julia, the privilege of solitude. So just a bit of background I'd like to mention. She hasn't always been a solitary creature. She um, has, Juliet is from the UK, and in her day, she was quite the rock and roller. She certainly, you know, came of age in, in London when it was really a swinging time. And... Um, and had many, many years of all kinds of adventures around the world and sailing trips and hospice study and uh, many, many different uh, phases of life, you could say. But about how many years ago did you come to Australia? And tell us a little bit about how all that came to be. Hmm. Well, I've I've been in Australia on and off since the late 80s. But I didn't actually, I moved here um, full time about um, 15 years ago. (laughs) The country I grew up in, England, was beautiful. Um, We, um, it's it's changed obviously so much. It's a much denser population now. and I wanted to, um, I wanted to live in uh, places that were still wild and less densely populated. And um, I love the ocean, which of course uh, we're lucky with Australia with being on the shores of the Great Pacific Ocean. So um, with the change in climate in England um, and these more, the, 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 more dense population and all the rest of it. I find myself um, wanting to um, lean into less trampled parts of nature. Mm-hmm. And um, Australia um, has that. I mean, the whole population is the same as Greater London. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, um, it's individual for everyone, but that that really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. I know that you and I both have been in a lot of heartbreak about what has happened here with the fires and in particular, the loss of our 
beautiful animals, the billion estimated mm. so far that have died in the fires. And of course, there are so many more that are at risk now of starvation because their habitats have mm. burned. And yes, speak a bit about that. For, for me, that has been, of all the components of these fires that are tragic, and there are many, that one is... Has the, is the one that keeps bringing me to tears as I come upon the images. It's a, it's a deep poignancy, isn't it? Because the suffering of the innocent mm. has always been um, a really painful thing to look at historically and, of course, what we're facing globally now and particularly in this recent months in Australia. But one of the things that occurs to me is is this um, mm, not comfortable irony that in over the billion animals that have had their habitat burnt to a cinder here and lost their lives painfully so during these fires, we actually slaughter um, that many animals um, every day, every week of every month. Um, for human consumption. So the figures, although shocking from the fires for the animals that have died, we seem to have become completely um, desensitized to the fact that we're sending that many animals into the slaughterhouses on a daily basis worldwide. So what is it in this disparity that we can then look at these figures with the animals hurt in these fires and yet be uh, not taken into account that we're actually doing that anyway mm -hmm. what's the difference mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. why is that such a shocking figure um and yet we've been doing it for decades to um, animals were breeding for um painful existences and terror in the slaughterhouses yes absolutely. those figures are the same yes well i mean it's the way that that we have inured ourselves to thinking about animals other than especially farm-raised animals and, and factory farmed animals as anything other than product, mm. right? Mm. So, um, I mean, I, I often look at the word livestock as a just a reprehensible concept. It's like living stock, living product to be sold and traded and, and mm. as you say, murdered and tortured and so on. Yeah. So it all comes to the grief of the world. I mean, do you think that that's in part why you feel you prefer to remove yourself from the company of most humans? I think I very much enjoy dialogue, um, communication, sharing ideas, even if they be completely opposing. I think any I think the conversation is always interesting and the individuation of that. However, I always come back to a core reference point in my own values and aesthetic, and that is the connection with nature. And as a species, we have become so disconnected from that that I think that it's just been a, a steady descent into losing our way to such an extent where's the sanity 
And we have to keep coming back to nature to remind us of what it is to live within natural law, um, natural respect. I was thinking, actually, on the way over to see you, Kath, today, I was thinking there was a song on the radio. It was an old Bob Dylan song that said, um, my father's house has many mansions and each with a fireproof floor. And I was thinking about, well, that's all very well talking about, um, you know, daddy and all the rest of it. But mama, mother nature, in other words, she's saying, listen, there's only one house. And if you <laughs> and uh, if you buy, you know, architect uh, the burning of that house, then I, I, I'm going to have to teach you a, a really tough lesson. Mm. You know, we are architects of our own demise in that respect. So, Daddy might have tried to erect a few fireproof doors to keep his mansions going, but Mama says, Mama says, no. Um, you choose to burn the house down, you're going to learn the hard way, and it's not. It's going to be painful. It's yeah. going to be a real reality check. Yeah. Yeah. So I always find in my personal life that that connection with nature, um, for all the systems that we've lived in, spiritually, politically, culturally, or otherwise, out of all of those things, I have this very deep love for nature because for the one simple reason, she's incapable of lying. She tells the truth as it is, mm. and you can't mess with it. So it demands all the highest qualities, I think, of honouring that respect and living according to those values. Yeah. So I, I've always considered her my greatest teacher. It's important. Mm -hmm. And um, now in these very densely populated areas and all the rest of it, which is why I left England, it's getting harder and harder to connect with that. You know, you use the phrase, and, and I just referred to it, <clears throat> the privilege of solitude. Now, I think we, we both have to agree that it's becoming one of the greatest privileges to be able to find solitude. And I'm very aware of how difficult it is for people who are living in these very dense populations of millions crammed onto relatively small amounts of space, whereby they probably have almost no access to solitude. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just reflecting on that privilege, and of course. Well, it's a really interesting question, isn't it, Kath? Because I wonder if you if you offered someone who lives in, um, whether it be a crowded community or uh, crowded conditions or uh, those things, I wonder if what their response would be if you offered them the choice of solitude, what it would be. I mean, I think a lot of those people have never experienced it, so they don't mm. even know what they're missing. They may not understand the rejuvenation of it. Mm. Um, I mean, I find that in leading retreats. Uh, when people come to their first retreat, for instance, they're usually pretty blown away mm. by the deep rest that they perhaps didn't even know they needed that they then experience in a, in a retreat and the ways that they calm down, that their whole nervous system calms down and their mind calms down and the agitation of the ordinary um, 
anxieties of daily life somehow fades, not only because you're removed from the usual stuff, but because you see it from a greater spacious distance in a sense. So, yeah, I do also wonder if, you know, if you, if you offer that kind of, I mean, most people, yes, they actually wouldn't dream of going to a silent retreat. They would think it was some kind of prison sentence, like solitary confinement. But I guess, well, another, let's go to another aspect that we could talk about. In your own case, what are the, the delights of solitude for you? Well, I think I, before we, um, um, picking up on what you were just talking about now, I think that this idea of um, grouping together in sort of amorphous masses, um, a tribe, whatever it be, you know, from um, uh, whatever your community represents to you, is, is um, intrinsically enmeshed with a primal fear of survival. Mm-hmm. And that's an ancient, um, it's an ancient condition. It yes. goes right back into a primordial conditioning. Yes. And I think that people hang together, choose a tribe, whether it's a football tribe, um, a Wall Street banker, a religious group, a political group for that matter, or whatever it may be. But at a at a deep level, it represents a safety. Mm-hmm. Well, that is that is how people survived forever. I mean, in yeah. the past, it's how they did it. Huddled yeah. together in the cave in case the opposing tribe came along mm-hmm. and wiped them out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's a problem with that because um, it means that uh, every decision you ever make uh, becomes, instead of, it becomes codependent. So... The, I, I, I always think that the, the principle of the hermit and the heretic are intrinsically bound. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and to, um, to choose to experience, which, you know, we're now finally, I suppose, in an era where, you know, speaking as a, as a female, we can actually choose to live uh, more independently. Um, we're in an incredibly privileged um, uh, place to be able to say, okay, well, what's it like if you actually <laughs> branch out from your <laughs> chosen chosen tribe? <laughs> yes, yes, and especially as women. I mean, women have so rarely in history been able to do anything like that, to actually live entirely independently and live alone and, you know, make their own way in the world. That's a relatively new thing in history. It's incredibly... Um, Recent, And I also think, well, unless you, you know, you'd been in the Himalayas a few hundred years ago and you'd escaped as a woman to go and live in a cave somewhere and you, you could get out and under from that way. But the other thing that hooks us into not experiencing the solitude, if you like, is if we're not doing it in a community, then there's this other deep conditioning that you've got to do it with a partner. <laughs> You know, which I always think of is this this kind of addiction to pollinating. Then you get this thing, well, okay, we're going to live a little bit outside of the The conventional, yeah. Outside of the conventional in that respect. But I've got to have someone there to to hook up with to do it. Pollinate with, do the washing up with, wake up in the morning with. Mm -hmm. 
And so... Um, and not to say that for those who love that, there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but um, for those who, for whom it's not necessarily aligned with their own nature, I think a lot of the ones who, for whom it isn't aligned with their nature have, mm. in a sense, forced themselves to contort into that system. Well, that's a good word, isn't it? Contort. Because... When you ask about what is it that um, had your interest about exploring, for want of a better word, solitude, um, for me it was, okay, so what happens if you remove all the standard crutches, relationship, um, community, all of those things, and you truly uh, uh, walk that path without um, without those... Um, without those crutches of any kind. Isn't that much more interesting adventure? And I've always seen it actually as a great adventure. Mm. I have an enormous passion for it. Mm -hmm. And I think it leads you to um, a, a joyous connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because um, you haven't got these subliminal or programmed codependencies going on, you actually realise that there's an infinite well of um, of uh, self-sufficiency and um, uh, infinite interest in passionate curiosity in so many things. Well, I know, I mean, I know you have, as I said, such a great love of nature and of animals, and you have this whole, you know, uh, relationship going on with the birds who come around and hang out at your house, such that they're even... Sleeping on your outside bed with you yeah. in, the, in the summertime. <laughs> Divine, right? They're marvelous people. <laughs> you can have the most fantastic conversations with them, um, and um, you know what? What are they? They're parakeets, or what? Well, they're these beautiful. We have in Australia these uh, sulphur-crested cockatoos. Oh, they're cockatoos, and they have yes. these sort of golden crests mm. um, on their heads. They're, they're marvelous, and there's. So much to be the beauty of their flight and the way they communicate with each other, with each other and the um, patterns that they have. It's the old adage with nature, isn't it? If you sit still long enough and you study it, there's so much one can learn about one's own intrinsic natural nature in that. Mm -hmm. And then every animal and every tree and every part of the way that you walk through nature becomes an amazing guide and, and teacher. Yes. But it doesn't have the agenda that we seem to have developed in the human psyche. And therefore, what you're um, experiencing is um, real and true. It's honest. Yes, yes, yeah. Beautiful. You know. mm -hmm. You've spent a lot of time at sea yeah. on sailboats with yeah. just one or, or just a few people. Yeah. Um, for long periods of time, living at sea as well. That's always been a mystery to me because I don't really, I mean, I don't mind being on a ferry for a short time, but <laughs> definitely the idea of being out at sea on a sailboat is something that is not exactly um, commensurate with my nature. <laughs> I, think, I think different elements appeal to different people. Yes, of course. And in truth, we're such elemental beings. We're yeah. made up of these things. Yeah, yeah. But what I personally, it's so different for everyone, what I personally have loved about it is um, I'm a, a great 
advocate of the freedom of choice. And out at sea, there aren't any traffic lights. You don't have these normal boundaries of, of restricted human structure and systematic way of uh, limiting our existence. So it's a direct experience, a vast expanse. And correspondingly, it also has a very, very beautiful and powerful way of keeping you very much in the present. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you realize, um, and the humility that comes from that, which has also been one of the great gifts of the strength and magnificence of the elements is, that if you're not um, totally present and conscious of that, the chances are that you won't make it through the next 10 minutes. Right, sure. So you could spend an entire lifetime sitting on a, on a meditation cushion, uh, learning or trying to attempt to keep your mind in the present. Go sailing in a big storm, and you, you're going to have a direct experience of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in a very, very beautiful, magnificent way. Mm -hmm. I love the sense of insignificance out there. Mm -hmm. I love that sense mm -hmm. of being as smaller than a speck of dust in the face mm -hmm. of the magnitude of ocean and sky. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that uh, you and I talk about often, and to your point about the insignificance, is I know you have pretty much no interest in presenting a somebodiness in the world. So you, you, you don't, you don't have that, um, impulse. You, you, you're repelled by it, as you often say. And, uh, let's talk a little bit about the time that we're in where that is the, that is the understood norm that especially for the younger people growing up in it, I, I speak about this quite a lot because I do see it as this oppressive thing where this constant self-focus, it's the absolute opposite of what you've just described about the humility that comes being out at, in the vast you know, regions of the ocean, um, vast, vast expanse of the ocean, it's just the opposite. It's it's the it's turning the entire microscope onto this tiny point of self, and how how awful <laughs> that has to be when that's your daily fare, <clears throat> and when you have the sense that there are so many other selves who might be having a much better time, or be more glamorous, or be richer, or be getting ahead. Yeah, one of my friends, I was listening to a friend of mine on the radio the other day here in Byron Bay, and he was talking about <clears throat> the system of capitalism basically took us from cooperative societies into competitive societies where you're basically in competition with everybody. And I think that a lot of the social media is the perfect, you know, the perfect condensed version mm -hmm. of that kind of mm. intense competitive thrust mm. and it's so anti-calming it's anti-dharma it's it's not loving um i suppose there are things people get from it i think they a lot of people mm. are keeping in touch in various ways with perhaps people in far-flung places, mm. 
Um, but anyway, I, I, I know you've you've uh, addressed this many times in your mind. It's an it's an interesting thing because um, although we um, look at the um, symptom of uh, the time we're in at the moment, that um, strange compulsion to compete has existed through um, all history. It, it, it's, it's hardwired into the human DNA. I mean, Darwin had a few things to say about that, mm. about the survival of the species, and therefore it had to be, uh, it was always fought for to prove a supremacy of one form or another, mm. whether that be an alpha male fighting for the female or vice versa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think that we've um, been playing in that, no, well, actually playing is entirely the wrong word, messing with that distorted field for um, thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And, and now we see it where, of course, um, you know, since uh, um, in, in um, political arenas and economical arenas and all the rest of it, um, the game gets um, the game gets really deadly because it, it, it's inflicted on the environment so much. At least we can say in the past that right. that level of um, uh, destruction, destruction or weaponry that causes that destruction or gender, if you like, they didn't have access to that. But the actual essential um, um, condition of competition, I think, is is. Mm-hmm. is endemic to the species. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And until we've addressed that, I, uh, someone said once, and I thought it was a very good point, there can never be a true de- democracy as long as there's a hierarchy. And there's always been hierarchies in human structure. Yeah, I mean, I do think you're right that it's 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 hardwired. Um, I mean, I, I was referring when I was talking about other times of societies that were more cooperative I would say within their tribal system, they had to be more cooperative. To they survive. had to, to survive, yes. So they were more cooperative mm-hmm. in that regard. But perhaps it is true that within that, there was, of course, competition. And it is it is something that is very... It's the thrust of this sense of importance, this sense of, you know, you want to feel like you've made the mark here. A lot of it, I think, really comes from our fear of death. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, that was at least one better thing about times gone by, is that people um, were much more um, intimately connected with death. Yes. I think um, one of the things that's happened in recent times is um, we've done everything we possibly can to preserve this uh, sense of um, immortality, and that really comes from this uh, this absolute terror of death. And I think that's why this whole uh, uh, climate issue has impacted people um, in a number and variety of ways emotionally is because it's forcing them, and perhaps you could say actually this is a benefit of it in, in all of this suffering, is it's forcing to people for actually to bring death out of the closet mm-hmm, and talk about mm-hmm, it. Absolutely. I've been saying a lot lately that... Um, because of our expectation of at least longevity, if not immortality for some people, they think that we're going to somehow crack that code. And But let's just say for a couple of few generations, we've been expecting great longevity. And 
part of, I think, the suffering of the privileged of this world is they're being confronted with that possibly not coming to be or that the expectation of it needs to be challenged. And we're dealing with the disparity of our expectations based on our privilege, whereas lots of people here on earth and certainly people historically did not have that expectation they death could come any day it could come from an infection it could come from anything uh they didn't live long and and so they had a very different relationship mm. to um yeah. to the uncertainty of life so we are confronted now with this great uncertainty and we kind of have no uh, resistance no resilience built up Mm. to deal with it Um, no I think we thought we could preserve ourselves in aspic or an embalming fluid of some kind and cryo frozen thing yeah 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 right no there's all of that but at the very least we thought you know especially in the developed world we thought that uh you know, you'd get an 80-plus years run. I think that's probably true, but that's one of the things when you talk about solitude and you talk about nature is it puts you in touch with these um, cycles and you see the birth and death and everything a yeah. hundred times a day. Yeah. And um, that one will give way to the other. But they truly need to be um, accepted. Um, God only knows we're born alone. We're certainly going to die alone. As we mentioned earlier, we see that um, uh, what often prevents the experience of um, uh, solitude, for want of a better word, is um, fear of survival. And You mean fear of not surviving? Fear of, yeah, fear of not surviving, which automatically, of course, implies dying. Um, and I was quite interested in exploring... Um, uh, what uh, I was quite interested in exploring in um, what that uh, fear of, of not surviving was. And it seemed to me that you had to go into um, um, a, a solitude on your own to do that, in, in much the same way you would approach your own death. Mm-hmm. Um, then, and I found through that there was there was no fear in that. You know, I started very young. Weirdly enough, I couldn't find um, many questions answered as a child. I, I'd ask grown ups things, probably quite nonsensical, you know, as a young, very young child. But I couldn't find any sensible answers, and I thought, well, um, where am I going to find the truth? And for some reason at the time, I was only 16 years old, I thought, I know, I'm going to go and work with the dying. Because surely by that time, um, no one's going to be bullshitting anymore. And it was, I found truth in that. Mm -hmm. I found suffering, I found pain, I found beauty, I found grace, I found love. All all the things people much better um, qualified than me have talked about so eloquently in those places. But for sure, it was the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And unless we make friends with that, it occurred to me at the time, and I, te- and I have lived like that since, we will always be afraid of our own solitude. Mm-hmm. Because, because it, it really impinges on this, on this deep fear of actually what it is to die, which is a, a solitary process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
we feel alive when we're with other people. It endorses our existence. It endorses um, the reflection that we are actually existing in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how about a really much more interesting to process if you take all that away and find out what is it, what is truly existent without those things. Yeah. And you find it's such a rich palette. Yes, beautiful. Yeah. It, it offers so much yeah. in its song and its dance and it's, um, mm-hmm. it's really fulfilling actually. I know I'm always amazed at how happy people get mm-hmm. in retreats and in particular people who have big lives and who have lots of balls in the air and whose lives are exciting and are, you know, they've kind of won the lottery of, of abundant life. And yet you stick them in a retreat where things are really stripped down mm. um, and maybe they're not living in as glamorous a situation or place or whatever. And, uh, you know, there's not much happening. <laughs> And they get so happy. <laughs> they get really, really, really happy. And That's why, and why is it? that? You know, it's because, of course, first of all, there's, there's a, a, mm-hmm. an alleviation from the oppression of having to present a personality, you know, and be out there being somebody. Even if you're not very, very kind of invested in one's ego, if you're with other people, you kind of have to show up as a person, <laughs> as, a, as you have to have a personality of some sort, you know. And that, I think, starts a little motor inside, a little engine has to kind of rev, get, up. rev up. and um, Fire up the adrenaline. Fire up and be, like, at least appear normal <laughs> and, um, or appear interesting or appear understanding or whatever it is, you know. There has to be a certain, whereas... When that is all stripped away and you're just, it doesn't have to be in retreat. You're just in solitude where you don't have to impress your own dear self. You can just be completely organically, simply alive. Mm. There's a rest of all the rest of those systems there. there. Mm. It's time off for them. And uh, it is very fulfilling I think that's the um, the joy of um, innocence. Yes, you can be innocent yes, you can be innocent again, absolutely. And, in, and um, you don't have to mask, you know, put on the usual. What it, it, it's not so much a mask, isn't it? I think we we um, whether it be conscious or unconsciously armor ourselves to go out into the onslaught of the world. Yes. You know, and that's why I find um, here, again, such a privilege, is that nature um, nature is still uh, strong here. Yes, of course, yes. I mean... It's still dominant. I think also there's an addiction to, um, when you were talking earlier about... Um, the uh, celebrity culture, you know, the new um, pantheon of gods, false gods, if you yes. like, that um, that uh, in whose temple is is now worshipped. But it's an endorsement of um, it's an endorsement of the fact that they even exist in the first place. Mm. Well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I I'm on. Um, 
social media for therefore I am. It used to be that I think therefore I am. <laughs> I have one million followers, <laughs> therefore, 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 therefore really I, am. I am. Yeah, I really am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? But that's so lovely that you find that people get really happy without um, without all the entrapment oh, they get, of the they trappings. Get happy, way happier is what they become. Mm. Yeah. But let me ask you this: Do you ever get lonely? I um, one of the great things about um, choosing to spend um, time on your on your own is that you actually get to explore um, where this conditioning of so-called aloneness is. I mean, we never were. We, we're so interconnected with absolutely everything. It, it was, it, it was a, a rotten myth, that, this aloneness business. So, so you're basically saying that if your camaraderie is the living world the birds and the creatures and the grasshoppers, and <laughs> then you're saying you're, you can't really be lonely. My camaraderie, if you like, or my, um, my um, connection with that is love. Mm-hmm. So um, it, 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 it is love for the natural, um, wise order of nature herself. And um, when when I'm in that, um, I sometimes feel my heart will just burst with bliss. Oh. And um, her generosity, the freedom she affords us, the patience, um, the beauty. Sometimes that's wrathful, you know, when the storm comes over the hill. But it's, I mean, it's utterly magnificent. And, um, but in all of that is... Um, the uh, love of the expression of this natural world. And so um, it puts you deeply in touch with that quality that we all intrinsically have in ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. Juliet, thank you for coming here today and spending this time with me. That was really lovely, Kath. <laughs> I so enjoyed that. And now that we've chatted, it's time to go and jump into the beautiful big blue ocean. Have a swim. <laughs> okay, let's go to the beach. Let's do it. <laughs> this has been In the Deep. You can find the entire list of In the Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com, where you can also book a private session or make either a one-time or a recurring tax-deductible donation to help with the production costs. Assuming you like these podcasts, we would also appreciate a review wherever you're getting yours. Till next time.